So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I gotta be, I gotta just preface this evening with, with this. Um, I just spent three and a half hours in a car with three kids under six. I ate McDonald's for lunch, and this is the fifth talk I've given in three days. So if I'm a little off tonight, um, if I'm not quite as precise and scripted and just laser-like accuracy as I normally am, um, <clears throat> I was at a retreat this weekend up in, uh, up in the north woods of Wisconsin with a bunch of junior hires. Man, have you guys ever spoken to junior hires before? These guys are a totally different breed. took me a while to really get my bearings, but man, you've got about 10 minutes you, literally, you have 10 minutes to make a, po- a couple of points, and then all mayhem breaks loose. But, so that's where I've been. Um, um, really glad to be back. I was telling Laura on the way home, uh, I'm, 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 I'm approaching a talk that I'm actually really, really excited about. So that's just to say I love you guys, and I love this community, and I love what I do. So I'm great, grateful to be able to do it. Um, We're in week eight of a series, I think, week eight of a series called This Just In, and we're studying the Beatitudes. And so if you're joining us for the first time, we'll just do a little bit of recap before we jump into tonight. Uh, Jesus essentially sits down in a massive crowd of people instead of standing up. He sits down, as a good Jewish teacher would do, and he makes some statements that uh, oftentimes get misinterpreted. What Jesus does is he makes a very counterintuitive list of statements about God and about the nature of his kingdom, what he doesn't do is give us like a prescription. Like if you want God's blessing, you need to do all of these things. That's not what he's doing. He's not creating another list of things we have to check off in order to to be holy and to be right with God. That's not what he's doing. Rather, he's declaring something about who God is and the nature of his kingdom, and it's good news to the people who heard it first. He announces, really, the gracious and loving and merciful heart of God to the people that he's with. The first four Beatitudes, which we studied, are really this idea of these are the places where God meets us. Uh, To the poor in spirit, to the meek, to those who mourn, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The second four, of which we're on the second uh, tonight, has more to do with the places that we then meet other people in light of the fact that God has met us. So tonight we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, and we're, we're going to read this. So if you would stand and we'll read this, uh, or I'll read it and you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there should be red ones in the seat pockets in front of you there, right next to the, uh, uh, the ear sickness bags. <laughs> Just seeing if you're awake. Okay, here we go. Now, when he saw the crowds, this is Matthew chapter 5, by the way. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage tonight of blessed are the pure in heart, uh, it's our desire in one way, shape, or form uh, to see you, to experience you, to to know you. And so as we look into your word, would you uh, make precise and clear the words that will come out of my mouth? Holy Spirit, would you speak? And say what we need to hear tonight. 
uh, wherever each of us are at, we pray that you would meet us in that place like you always do. We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. How do we understand pure in heart? How do we understand uh, this idea that Jesus says, blessed are these people, the ones who are pure in heart? And then how do we understand, for they will see God? And I do, of course, a lot of studying. I feel like I get sent back to my, my black hole over here in my office each week to find like these nuggets of truth. And as I study this one, there are all kinds of interpretations of, for they will see God. Some people believe that this has to do with like, you know, uh, visions and, and dreams and literal like seeing of God. And others have other thoughts on it. You'll get to mine in a moment. But how do we understand pure in heart? And how do we understand that they will see God? Um, I am learning. The more and more I study the scriptures, the more and more I look into uh, a passage or a, a story in the Bible, the more and more I come to it assuming and believing that there is always something else going on just below the surface of what you're reading. Over and over and over again, you'll find something in the scriptures, and on the surface, it says one thing, but lurking just below it is something oftentimes revolutionary and completely mind-blowing, and usually when Jesus is talking, that's the case. And I think this particular passage, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, is no different than that. Jesus says something in its original context that is mind-blowing. It is earth-shattering. This just in. This is news for the world. He takes something that everybody in the audience would have expected him to say, right? If I say the early bird gets the worm, right? You all expect me to say that. Jesus is saying something, and he says, Blessed are, and he's about to say something about purity, And what he says, or what he omits, rather, and what he puts in its place, would have had everybody going, what? So we're going to get into that a little bit tonight, especially in light of the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, you know, this group of people, you have uh, the the Old Testament law, and then the Pharisees are a group of folks who came along and, and throughout Jewish history added to what was originally given to Moses. And there's like over 600 and some laws by the time it's all done. And these are the things that you have to follow in order to be holy. These are the things that you have to do in order to be right with God, in order to see God. And so to the Pharisees, what Jesus says is like, blows the roof off. So in order for us to understand this, we've got to take a, we got a, little, a little history lesson and a little literature lesson. So um, I, we talked about this before, long ago, but it's really, really important in, in order for us to get this. So allow me to take you on a journey, if you will. I am your tour guide. My name's Micah. Buckle up. This is going to be good. Okay, so... In the original, uh, uh, way back in the day, when, uh, when the Jews become a people, God you know, says to Abraham, I'm going to take you, I'm going to make you, bless you, You're the sand, your kids will be like the sands of the seashore, uh, Father Abraham, I am one of them, I'm on the left leg, right leg. Okay. They get the law, right? And who, who do they get it from? This is not a trick question. God, there you go. What looks, uh, oh, you've heard that joke, it's dumb. So they get the law, right? They get the law from God, and it's in the form they call it the Torah, okay? So it's in the, uh, the first five books of the Bibles is called the Torah. And so they get this law, this 
this, this how to live from God. Okay? Now, from there, you fast forward throughout Jewish history, and what you have is a group of people, the teachers of the law, or the, 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 the folks who were in charge of kind of teaching the rest of Israel how to live, they essentially, they are a group of people who, they don't write things down. They transmit the law from generation to generation by oral transmission. And if you do any study on this, it's absolutely fascinating, the accuracy at which they pass down these rules and regulations and their traditions and all this stuff. So you have the law from God, then you have the oral law, and these, this, this is essentially the, the, the law interpreted, and it's all oral. It's, if none of it's written down, okay? And you get all the way up to the time of Jesus, and there's still no written version of the oral law. So when there's debates and there's things going on in the New Testament where they're you know, going back and forth about, well, do you think that Jesus should do this, or do you think that he should do that? This is all oral law stuff that they're talking about. None of it's written down yet. It's all just out there in the minds of the leaders of Israel, okay? And they pass it down from generation to generation, from their sons to their sons and so on and so forth. Now, after Jesus dies, in about 200, in the first and second centuries, the Jews begin to be persecuted by the Romans, right? And other people around them, mostly the Romans. And there is a fear among the people of Israel that what has been oral and has been transmitted through generation to generation by these uh, this sort of mnemonic devices that they have will be lost because when they are persecuted, they get dispersed throughout uh, the ancient Near East, right? And so there's a guy named, uh, I, what, let me see, let me make sure I get this guy's right. Uh, Judah Hanasi was his name, and in about 200 B.C., he writes down the first version of the oral law, and it's called the Mishnah. All right? So the Mishnah is the first version of the oral law that's ever written down in about 200. Now, three centuries after that, you have rabbis, and, and all through those three centuries, and these rabbis are commenting, like any good religious people will do, right? They comment on their text. And they write down, or they have all these commentaries on the Mishnah, and when that gets written down, it's called the Gemara. You combine these two, and you get what's referred to as the Talmud. Anybody ever heard that word before? There was a school that was right by a golf course that I always played when I was a kid. It's called the Talmud Torah. And I'm like, what in the world is the Talmud? Well, you're here tonight, and I'm going to tell you. It's the Mishnah and the Gemara combined, okay? Everybody's still tracking so far. Now, back up to the Mishnah. Within the Mishnah, there are 12, or there are six different, uh, let's call them chapters, okay? They call them orders. And one of the orders is called, uh, I think it's like T-O-H-O-R-O-T-H, Tohoroth, or something like that. And this particular chapter, one of the six, has all of the laws that have to do with purity, so if there's anything to do about being ceremonially pure in the, in the Jewish religion, it's going to be found in here. And within this order, there's 12, other, there's 12 chapters in this particular order. There's over 200 pages in this order about purity laws in Israel. So if you wanted to be pure, and, 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 and you, there were all kinds of laws about like vessels that you would eat and drink from, about uh, things that you would serve things on, um, uh, from from things that you would drink from, uh, there are laws about you know bodily fluids and all kinds of crazy stuff. Anything that might make you unclean or not pure was in this particular chapter in the Mishnah. Everybody's still tracking. 
Now, here's why I tell you all of that. Take a wild guess at how many words or phrases are in the Mishnah, the order of Toharoth, in the 12 different sections on purity that have to do with the heart. Zero. Zero. Not a zilch, not a one. So Jesus sits down in a huge crowd of people who are mostly Jewish and at least know who these Jewish people are, and he says, blessed are the pure. And everybody's thinking to themselves, you know, 12 chapters, 200 plus pages about purity. You know, don't touch this, don't touch that, don't eat this, don't do that, don't do this when this happens, don't do this when that happens. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What the? you got to be kidding me. Who does this guy think he is? So he gets up there and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, there's two different kinds of purity that we have going on here, right? There's one version of purity that the Pharisees are pushing. Okay, And this version of purity has everything to do with what you do or don't do. So if you want to be pure and you want to therefore see God, experience God, know God, worship at the temple, you have to do all of these things. Hundreds of rules and regulations. And it's about, and everything has to do with what you do or what you don't do, what you touch or what you don't touch. And it all is on you. Jesus, on the other hand, offers a completely different understanding of purity. The Pharisees are ramming this one down Israel, and they're saying, this is how you're pure. This is how you see God. This is how you experience Him. This is how you worship. And Jesus sits down in the midst of a crowd and says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What's the difference between the two? Scholars would call it a divine passive. A divine passive. And a divine passive is essentially something only God can do or give. There's already been a couple of them in the Beatitudes that we've studied before. A divine passive. The difference between what Jesus is doing and what the Pharisees are doing is something that only God can do. The Pharisees, on the other hand, it's everything has to do with you, right? All the pressure, all the, all the, the holiness pressure is on your shoulders. And Jesus sits down in the midst of a crowd and says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Only something God can do. And BT dubs, this is exactly, this is exactly what God wants, that's by the way. This is exactly what God wants to do. This, God wants to give you a clean heart. God wants to give you a pure heart. God desires it. He longs for it. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a, there's a beautiful, wonderful passage in there. And it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, if you're new to the whole Christian thing, this sounds crazy. A God who's going to like rip your heart out of your chest and it's going to be stone. Of course, this is metaphoric language here, gang. Don't go literal on me, okay? 
Don't go literal on me. No uh, Indiana Jones or anything like that. Okay. What God wants to do, the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God of this story longs, wants to, died to be able to take your heart of stone that heart that is bent inward on itself, that heart that is, has this proclivity to do the things that you hate and that you don't want to do and that you know you shouldn't do, but you do anyhow, that has been hardened by sin. God wants to take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, but God is the only one who can do it. The difference between the Pharisees' version of purity and Jesus' version of purity is exactly that with the Pharisees and with law. It's all about what you do and what you don't do, and the pressure is all on you. Jesus stands up, sits down in the midst of a crowd, and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, something only God can do, for they will see God. Now, Augustine, the great uh, church father, I think of like, I'm not good with numbers. I think it was like the 4th or 5th century. It was a long time ago. So Augustine, he says, a heart, a purity of heart is a heart that is undivided in allegiance and so rightly directed. So it's this heart that has one passion. It has one desire, and it's rightly directed. It's not wrongly directed. It's not directed at things that shouldn't be, but it's rightly directed. Like the one who created the heart, who says this is what it should be directed at, that's what it's directed at. Kierkegaard, uh, one, another uh, philosopher, theologian, says, purity of heart is to will one thing. So the question is, I mean, the million-dollar question, the one that you're all just on the edges of your seats asking or thinking, how do we become people who are moving towards purity of heart, especially when it's only something God can do, right? This is a vexing question. Okay, at least it is for me. I, get, I love this stuff. Here's two thoughts. I just want to close with this. Two thoughts. How do we become people who begin to move towards purity of heart? Jesus sits down in the massive crowd and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How do, we, how do we even begin to move towards that if, in fact, this is a divine passive? It's only something that God can do, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How do we do that? Thankfully, thankfully, <clears throat> the God that we're talking about is not a God who acts and moves, <coughs> excuse me, acts and moves void of your participation, void of your desire and your will, your decision. <coughs> if God is a God of love, which the scriptures say he is, then if he came and he moved and he ripped out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh when you didn't want it, that would not be love. It would be coercion it would be it would be a tyrant even even though it's of the greatest intentions right it would be somebody doing something to you you don't really want god will not move and will not act even though he longs to do something and even though he's the only one to do it he will not do it if you do not give him the freedom and the access to do that i would say if we're going to be people who begin to move towards purity of heart first and foremost it's a conscious volitional decision that includes your will and what the Jews would call your heart-mind, okay? The heart, in our understanding, is separated from your mind or from your, 
The heart is usually your emotion and your mind is usually your reason and your intellect. That's totally foreign to the Jewish understanding of the person. So combine the two and what you have is a Jewish understanding of the person. Your heart mind, your heart, when it says your heart in here, does not talk about your emotion, but it's getting at the essence of who you are. So how do we become people who, who start moving towards purity of heart, purity of person, purity of being? It's a conscious, volitional act of your will that you decide. God does not impose himself on you, and he will not. But when we say, and when we give access, and when we give permission and say, God, I want you to give me a heart that beats, and one that is alive and, and, and in tune with, or at least even can have the capacity to beat for the things that your heart beats for. I want that. The beauty of the gospel is that he does it. And he wants to do it. And it is unbelievable. And he died to be able to do it. How do we even begin to move towards that? It's, it's, it's part of us that participates in this. It's, not, it's something that only God can do, right? That's why the Beatitudes are so bizarre and crazy. Because Jesus sits down and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, the people who mourn, the, the meek. Everybody who can't do anything for themselves, blessed are you, because that's where God shows up. That's where God meets you and says, you can't do it on your own. These are divine passives. You cannot do any of these things on your own. And God says, but I want to do that for you. And I will if you will allow it. If you will invite me to do it. And he will. This is good news for the people who showed up that day on a hillside when Jesus started talking. I would say secondly, and and this is totally connected to the first Uh, How do we begin to be people who move towards purity of heart? Uh, This is hard work, gang. This is hard work. The scriptures say that our hearts are are deceitful and wicked and that that no one can know them. Like our hearts, uh, the hearts of stone that that he's talking about here, uh, they are turned, Luther says that a heart is turned in on itself and that's sin. That's exactly what we've got. So this purity of heart bit is hard work, but it includes consistent and frequent prayers of examine. And I want to introduce a, a, a phrase to you in this idea of prayers of examine. There's a guy named Richard Foster who wrote a book, and I'm going to quote from it in a little bit, but it's called Prayer. And this is one of the prayers that he talks about in this book. Um, so consistent and frequent prayers of examine. In classic Jewish form, we have Jesus stand, sitting down, and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. And if you know anything about me and you know anything about Jesus, he's, he's tapping into, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. 95% of the time, if you're wondering what's going on, it's in the Old Testament, and you could probably find it if you look for it. This is Psalm 24, and it says essentially this, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in its holy place? The question that's being asked is, who can see God? Who gets to experience God? Who gets to worship God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the psalmist says, those who have clean hands and a pure heart and who have no idols or who don't lift their soul to an idol. So this idea of consistent and frequent prayers of examine requires from us a degree of self-awareness and self uh, self-knowledge that is critical to the process of God giving us a new heart. If we're going to say to God, I want a new heart and I want 
I want you to give me this heart of flesh and and exchange it for this heart of stone. It's going to require you and I to be in tune with and in touch with this heart of stone that we have. Because until glory happens and Jesus comes back, the Bible teaches that we're going to wrestle with it. So I want to quote a passage from this book that Richard Foster writes. It's going to be on the screen. And I want you, if you listen better with your eyes closed, this is like wicked profound. I mean, this is really profound. Uh, So if you listen better with then close your eyes, but whatever you need to do, I want you just to really hone in on this, all right? He says this, We must not deny or ignore the depth of our evil, for paradoxically, our sinfulness becomes our bread. When in honesty we accept the evil that is in us as a part of the truth about ourselves and offer that truth up to God, we are in a mysterious way nourished. Even the truth about our shadow side sets us free. He goes on to say, There is, therefore, no need to repress, suppress, or sublimate any of God's truth about ourselves. Full, total, unvarnished self-knowledge is the bread by which we are sustained. A yes to life means an honest recognition of our own evil, but it is also a yes to God, who in the midst of our evil sustains us and draws us into his righteousness. Through faith, self-knowledge leads us to self-acceptance and self-love that draw their life, not from us, but from God's acceptance and his love. Purity of heart is something that we will wrestle with and that we will struggle with until Jesus comes back. But Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will experience and they will see God. How do we move towards that? First and foremost, it's a decision that you make. And I would challenge some of you tonight to think about that. Maybe some, maybe some of you are here and you haven't decided, you haven't given God full reign. You haven't given him access to all of your heart. To say, God, wherever you need to go and wherever you need to shine your light in my dark heart, you have freedom to do that. I give you access. I give you the keys to my heart. And essentially, heart, what I'm saying is myself, me as a person. It's a a decision that we make. And Solstice is is a church that's about following Jesus. And and, and that being... uh, Founded or based on the idea that only Jesus can give life. And so we always want to be putting that in front of, of our community. That this is a, a decision that you make and you say yes to Christ and you follow him. And if we're going to be people who are on the journey towards purity of heart, which is only something God can give, it's coupled with God's desire and his ability to give us a pure heart and our desire and ability to give him control. And say, God, whatever you need to do, do it. To be aware of our broken hearts. To be aware of our hearts of stone, which are evil and wicked. And in those moments when we're aware of who we are, at the depths of our being, we find life. Because God meets us there and says, 
This is the heart that I want to give you. This is the new creation that I am making you into. This is the redeemed and restored you. This is who you were created to be. This is who I made you to be. This is what it looks like to be you in all of your glory. When we're in tune with and in touch with our hearts of stone, that's where God meets us and says, this is who you were made to be and this is who I long for you to be. And that, my friends, is good news. Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a couple of songs. But before we do that, I'm going to just invite you to, uh, to maybe uh, meditate, think a little bit. I think uh, Joel's going to just start playing quietly. And I want you to think about... Two things. One, have I given God access to my heart, to every corner of it? And even if you're a Christian tonight, even if you've said yes to Christ, this applies to you and it applies to me. Consistently, we need to be coming back to this question of have I given God access to everything? Are there parts of my heart that I'm hiding because I'm ashamed, because I'm scared? Because I'm not sure what's going to happen if I really let God into that spot. And it is ruthlessly dangerous and absolutely worth it. And so ponder and think. Ask yourself that question in the quietness of your own heart. Have I given God access to everything? And I'm just going to let you think about that and and kind of sprinkle in a couple of thoughts. One is a psalm and one is just a prayer. They'll be on the screen, and so if you want to read them. But I want to just give you a minute or two to think and ask that question. Maybe for the first time, have I given God access to my heart? Have I given him all of me? Have I said yes to Christ? So just spend some some time alone, uh, quietly. And uh, I'll read these as time passes, and then we'll close with a couple of songs. So I want to invite you into that. Passion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a pure heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Precious Savior, why do I feel your scrutiny? Why do I fear your scrutiny? Yours is an examine of love. Still, I'm afraid. Afraid of what may surface. And even so, tonight I invite you to search me to the depths so that I may know myself and know you in fuller measure.